Um, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming today. Um, first of all, I'm really sorry for my voice. I'm like everybody in this country getting over a cold, so sorry <laughs> for the croakiness. Um, I'm going to assume that most of you have read Tara's brilliant book, but just for the few who haven't, or maybe as a reminder to those who read it when it first came out this year, um, I'll just read a little description of it that's not written by me, but one of her fans. Tara Westover's Educated is a remarkable memoir of a young woman raised in a survivalist family in Idaho who strives for education while still showing great understanding and love for the world she leaves behind. Now, as I said, that is not actually my description of Tara's book. It was written by this little nobody called Barack Obama, <laughs> who picked it as one of his summer reads this year. And I thought, I'd do the guy a solid, take his review off Amazon.com, and share it with the Cambridge audience. Uh, now, being picked as President Obama's uh, pick of the summer would be enough to blow the mind of any writer. What makes this even more remarkable is that this is Tara's debut book. And what makes it even more remarkable than that, that she was, until the age of 17, entirely self-educated, which in her case meant very minimally educated at all. And this is partly what her, as Obama says, remarkable memoir is about, her life growing up in a Mormon family in deepest rural Idaho with her seven siblings and her father, who she calls Jean in the book, and her mother, who's called Faye. But at a certain point, Tara decided she wanted more, and that she is here today in Cambridge with a book praised by the American president is a testament to how much she succeeded. So also, another apology, I'm actually reading questions off my phone. I'm not checking Instagram while talking to Tara. <laughs> I obviously completely failed to work out how to use the printer in the Guardian office again, so <laughs> everything's on my phone. So Tara, let's just start with the obvious stuff. Uh, where were you when you found out that Obama had picked your book as the pick of the summer? Uh, I think I was, I guess I was coming out of the Saturday morning brunch with a friend, you know, it's a very New York-y moment, I guess. I looked <laughs> at my phone and there, you know, like you do, the second you get out of one conversation, you neurotically check your phone. And, uh, and yeah, there was an email from, from my editor saying, this thing happened. Uh, <laughs> And I didn't, yeah, I don't think I really got it for, I think I walked home and was still kind of working that out. So it was pretty, it was pretty strange. Have you met with him yet? Uh, yeah, he called me. <laughs> what, on your mobile? <laughs> yeah, so I got a call from someone said, uh, are you busy this afternoon? Do you think you could take a call from the president? I said, I think I'd squeeze that. <laughs> I'll squeeze that in, I guess. And uh, yeah, but I, I did get to meet him uh, when I was in DC as well. So mm -hmm. it was super weird. I mean, he's really not, he's not weird. It was weird. <laughs> and one of the things that struck me so um, incredible when this happened, obviously aside from the fact of him picking it, is picking your book, is so much of the book is about your family's fear of being known by the government, you know, not registering, not registering births. And suddenly, the President of the United States very much knows you and knows your mobile number. Yeah. Um, it was a twist in the book that kind of almost you know, defied fiction. I wondered if your family knew about this, how they felt about it. Uh, if they knew about Obama, if they knew about the book. They knew about Obama. I have no idea. I mean, I, I know, I'm sure, so there's half my family I'm estranged from. Mm -hmm. Sorry, this is a spoiler, I guess. Uh, um, it's weird to think about your life in terms of Spoilers. <laughs> Let's put that aside. And um, yes, there's half my family I am estranged from. And so I, I correspond a bit with email with my mother, for example. Mm -hmm. But I don't, whenever possible, I don't talk about the book. And in general, we don't talk about anything 
that is hard to talk about. It's just nice little. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then half my family I'm close to, so they definitely know, and mm -hmm. it's all good. But I have no idea the half I'm estranged from. I'm, I have no clue. They're not exactly Obama's biggest fan. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so I suspect it doesn't help. <laughs> Now, um, as Mindy said, I met Tara first last year, I think probably about this time last year when I interviewed her for American Vogue. And I know probably most of you think of American Vogue as just like a magazine of clothing and dresses and stuff, but it is actually the most rigorously fact-checked magazine I've ever worked for. It's the same publisher who does The New Yorker and they have the same fact-checkers. And when I sent through my interview with Tara and I checked everything, double-checked, sent through my sources, just what you have to do, send them the transcript, felt everything was fine. And then I get a call from the Condé Nast fact checker said, yeah, hi, um, it's all fine, um, but do we actually know if any of this is actually true? <laughs> <laughs> and I suddenly sort of had this heart-stopping moment and I was like, what? She said, well, I mean, you know, there was kind of like the James Frey thing. You have to be wary of hoaxes in books. And this just sounds almost too incredible to be true. And I suddenly thought, I have no idea how to find that. And I spoke to you and I spoke to your editor, obviously. It was all true, another spoiler. But <laughs> I just wondered if you'd had that reaction a lot, a kind of almost disbelief, because this story is so incredible. Yeah, it's kind of a funny thing. There was a really brief period I thought about, I guess the traditional thing to do with a memoir, if you're not sure you want to write a memoir, is just fictionalize it mm. and make it a novel. Mm. And I didn't do that for a couple reasons. There was part of me that thought, if I write this as a novel, no, it's not actually believable as a novel. Like novels have to, mm. whereas real life is quite frequently unbelievable, I think. Like things that happen in real life are much, like if someone two years ago had written a fictional version of what of American politics right now, <laughs> people would say, you can't write, this is a ridiculous book, it's completely unbelievable, none of this would ever happen. And then real life is actually much stranger and we all have to accept it because it is happening, although some of us haven't quite accepted it. But um, I think it, there's a, a sense in which I like, it kind of has to be a memoir, actually, because mm. as a novel, no one will, no one will believe it. Mm. Uh, there were other reasons I didn't write it as a novel, mostly having to do with, I thought, especially because so much of it is about estrangement, and I feel like estrangement is one of those things people don't talk about as, as much as as I think they probably should, or a certain group of people talk about it all the time. And then um, I didn't feel like the discourse around it was particularly helpful, mm. especially as someone who had gone through it and was looking for other people <clears throat> who were willing to talk publicly about it. I found so few people were, and I thought it might be more helpful as a memoir to say, this happened, it happened to me, there's a life after, there's a way to put your life together mm. after this happens to you in a way that I felt like hiding behind a novel wouldn't achieve that. Mm. Now, I'm assuming most people here have read the book. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, no one here has not read the book. Yeah, should we do a show of hands? I'm so sure some no, people is, have. Is, <laughs> has anyone not read the book? Just so we, oh, okay, quite a few. Right. So perhaps. <laughs> I think we should assume that everybody's read it. That's, that's so maybe, Tara, if you want to explain how the estrangement happened, just so people understand what we're talking about. Uh, do I want to explain that? Um, <laughs> Uh, well, it's so my family in the title. Yeah, my family are not typical. I think we could say um, they're really. My parents are are good people. They love their children. They want the best for their children. What they think the best is is pretty radically different mm. from what most people think the best is. And so, my dad was against doctors and hospitals. He thought they were part of the Illuminati. He thought if you took any pharmaceuticals, that it would be so bad for your body that it would 
you know, your children's children would be suffering if you took, you know, an aspirin. Mm. So we never went to the doctor. We never, we were all born at home. We didn't have birth certificates. We didn't go to school because he also didn't believe in that. So we had this kind of extreme upbringing. Mm. And that was challenging because when I was 17, I, I did go to university and I started to move away from them ideologically. And that was a difficult thing to do, to navigate in terms of relationships. Um, Ultimately, my family and I would have a pretty serious disagreement over an older brother of mine who was violent. And who's called Sean in the book. Who I call Sean in the book. My parents say he is not violent. I say he is, and, and we have a pretty serious split over that. And he was violent to you in front of them. Yeah, I, I tend to think that they denied it so rigorously, and they did deny it pretty rigorously. They eventually started telling people I was possessed mm. as a way to explain what I was saying. And... Um, I tend to think that they were so extreme in their response, almost because they knew it was mm. true. I, I sometimes think, if I just kind of said that about a random brother that everybody knew was not like that, I, I kind of feel like they might have been very sympathetic and kind of just wondered, I wonder why you're, you don't seem okay, why would you say this, uh, instead of this really extreme response mm. that they had. So uh, it's hard to parse out what people know and what they just refuse to know and what you know how, how people... People don't always make sense, and so you can drive yourself completely insane trying to make their actions make sense. I, I try not to over-obsess about it. And I actually, I looked back at the interview we did last year um, ahead of coming up here, and one thing I'd forgotten that you said, which really kind of almost devastated me reading it, I asked why did they take Sean's side in that argument over yours? And also this goes back as well to their beliefs, and you said it was because partly, perhaps, you're a woman speaking up, and a woman shouldn't be able to recommend life in the way that you were speaking up about him. Do you still feel that way? I think that there was a, my family was definitely very patriarchal, and I'm sure that affected it. Um, I think it's a strange thing. In some ways, I feel like the men in my family, because it's patriarchal, it's a certain kind of, of patriarchal society, like family in the sense that I think the men are almost treated as more fragile. Mm than the women mm. in, a, in a way they're, they're kind of coddled mm. in a way that me and my sister and my mother are definitely not. And so, you know, I had a, a strange conversation with my mom. The first time I confronted my mother about my brother being violent, my sister and I both confronted our mother. And she believed us. She mm. took us very seriously. And we had this sort of strange conversation about it. And it happened over um, chat, which is another strange feature. So I had it and I was reading it when I wrote the book. And, um, and I asked her that, basically. I said, you knew this was happening. And she said, yeah. And I said, so why did you not do anything? She said, well, you know, he's my son. I love him. I'm a mother. My instinct is to protect. And I sort of said, well, you were my mother, too. Mm. Um, and that, that's the confusing bit, mm. I think. See, you say that it's extreme and unusual, but is there a part of you that sees that reflected in the greater world, this attitude? I mean, we saw that this summer. I'm not going to make this all political. Don't worry. We're going to stick with Tara's book. But for example, during Brett Kavanaugh's hearings, we kept being told, we can't make these accusations. They'll ruin a man's life. Yeah. Meanwhile, the women who were speaking up were having to live in hiding and were getting death threats. It's this idea that, you know, if you say something about a man, it could literally destroy him. And therefore, women should just keep quiet. I mean, I, I found yeah. amazing echoes in a weird yeah. way. Well, I think there's, there's that fact that we're all coming to terms with that memory is really unreliable mm. and that we, d we never can get to the truth of what happened. 
And my, I have to deal a lot with that. At the, cent at the center of this book is me saying, this is what my brother is like and was like, and my parents saying, uh-uh. And uh, there was a long period where I thought, I can't write the book because my parents aren't going to back me up on this. And then I kind of realized, no, that's actually what it, it's, a, it's about. As long as you're upfront about this and you're not telling everyone anything different mm. than what it is, then, then it's OK. You can make the book about that. And I, I tend to think there's the fact of the fallibility of memory. There's the fact that we don't know what happened and that everybody's memory is fallible. But I think what's interesting is not so much that memory is unreliable as once we recognize that memory is fallible, there is something interesting about whose memories we treat as fallible and whose memories mm. we don't mm. and which voices. So my parents love to say that memory is really unreliable, so you've probably made up these things. And I remember it perfectly, so let me tell you how it is. And <laughs> there's this strange tension there mm. where I feel like, well, I know my memory's fallible. I'm, I'm willing to say that I might have got this a little bit wrong or maybe even a lot wrong. And it's strange that we're going to approach the conversation and say, well, memory is fallible, but basically only mine. Mm. And, <laughs> and that just seems, I, I think that has a lot more to do with power dynamics mm. and who gets listened to, and I don't want to be terribly political either. I have no idea what happened with Kavanaugh and Ford. I have no clue. But I know that mechanism that they used to look into her testimony didn't seem full. Or also just the way the, the current president, who sadly probably doesn't pick books for the summer, um, <laughs> um, his reaction to women who speak up, you know. Right. I and mean, that is a form of coercive control. Yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't a, a let's step back and think about it and, and, there, and look into it. And let's listen to her the same way we listen to him. There wasn't that mm. response. And there could have been. There's just know? personal abuse and accusations. Yeah, so I, I tend to think, okay, we all know memory is, is fallible. What's, what's interesting or what's difficult is that next step of the power dynamics and who we listen to mm. and how we try to treat respectfully everyone involved. Mm. And, uh, and that is, yeah, that's a human process. It's going to be super problematic. But it seems particularly problematic right now. And one of the complicating factors of that in your book is the issue of mental illness, really. It's that you say in the beginning your older siblings had a different experience of your father than you and your younger siblings, that at some point he had a change. And Sean, your older brother, who who you say physically abused you, he had head injuries at certain points working in your father's junkyard. And that also adds to the complicating factors yeah. and also gives a sense of the danger that you were around. I mean, that one of the amazing things about the book is that you describe the beauty of the land, but also its danger. I mean, your father had this junkyard where almost all of you were getting injured all the time in it. We weren't so great with the safety. <laughs> <laughs> no, we weren't. I mean, I think it's hard for people to understand my, when I say my parents loved us and wanted the best for us, mm. then they see something happen, like my brother lit his leg on fire and is covered in third-degree burns and he doesn't get taken to a hospital. And people think that that's just callousness, mm. and that my dad doesn't care about my brother's health or pain or anything. And it's hard for me to convince people, if you think that the doctors are working for the Illuminati, denying your kids medical care, that's what love looks like. Mm. Like It's, in, it's mm. kind of crazy, but that's what it is. And the only evidence I can, or the, at least the best evidence that I can offer of that is that the worst injury that happened to anybody happened to my dad. You know, he was, he was standing next to a car and he, he didn't remove the fuel from the tank before he lit a torch to, only pansy liberals see that. And uh, so, so, I mean, you know, fuel is flammable and the car blew up. 
and he was standing next to it. He was, he was burned very, very badly. And he would never regain the full use of his right hand. His face would be changed. He nearly died. And they didn't go to the hospital. And he, not a drop of morphine, I mean, nothing. He just, you know, months and months and months recovery of that. Unbelievable pain, and he just bore it. Mm. So it's, it's not the case that he denied us medical care and then packed himself off. No, he wasn't a hypocrite. He no, really believed he it. He really yeah. believed it. Mm. And so then that, I think, I don't think I understood that. I think when you're a child, you can't really understand the differences between, say, intention and effect. Mm. The difference between the kind of parent someone intends to be and the kind of parent they actually are. And it wasn't until I went to Cambridge, I think, that I got that concept of mental illness and realized my dad can care about my safety and still continuously put me in danger. I don't know how that works, but it's mm. true. Mm. And then you have to start deciding what that means mm. for the choices that you're going to make mm. and how, where your boundaries are going to be and are you going to have this in your life, knowing that they might want to be a really good parent. The, the failure might be a failure of the, of the mind, not the heart, yeah. which I think for my dad it, it was. And so then the questions are less about what this person deserves and, and whether they're a terrible person and, and more about what you think you deserve for yourself and what you want to do to look after yourself, knowing that they have this problem where they intend this, but what they actually do is this. The bigger question, which is one you really look into in the book, is your mother. Because your mother came from a very different background from the one you grew up in. Her parents were kind of horrified at how she was raising her own children. Quite. Both my parents' <laughs> parents were horrified, to be fair. <laughs> and your mother, there are moments when she sees the truth, like you say. She, she could see that Sean was abusing you, and yet she retreats into defending your father. And there's, there's, it's never entirely clear how much she sees clearly and how much she just subscribes to your father's point of view. What, what do you think was going on there? I feel like my mother is sort of, I've always felt like this, my mother is kind of two different people. So there is, I think of her as kind of my mother and my father's wife, mm. and they're very different mm. people. And when you're just with my mother, that's who I think of as my mother. But whenever she's around my father, she's very different. And she's just kind of a foot soldier for all of his many causes. <laughs> and um, when I was a kid, I feel like most of the time she was my mother. And now I feel like the one has completely hmm. taken over. And I guess it's, uh, it's that kind of duality. You just have to find a way to live with it. When I'm thinking about my mother in abstract terms, I think about the good things, the really nice memories I have. But when I'm thinking a little bit self-defensively about where my boundaries want to be, I hmm. definitely am thinking of that other hmm. person. Hmm. Of course, the biggest split in the book is you pre-education and post-education. And I remember when we met, I, in my incredibly narcissistic way, as another American who's come to England, assumed that the biggest change for you would have been coming from America to England, because that was obviously no. the biggest change in my life, whereas that was nowhere near the truth with Tara having yeah. a different life from me and not being me. Um, and you said the biggest, diff the biggest change for you was leaving home and going to Brigham Young University. Yeah, and it, it was only a couple hours drive, but that changed from my immediate family to a university environment. Mm. Yeah, it, it might as well have been Mars. Mm. I mean, it was completely different. From BYU to Cambridge was strange and discombobulating, but, you know, it was, we're going to go to classes, we're going to listen to people talk, we're going to write stuff down, we're going to read some books, people are going to talk a bit funny. Mm. <laughs> 
We're going to wear a lot of black robes for some reason. <laughs> uh, we're all just going to be Harry Potter for a while. But uh, it was kind of fine, and I had, a, I had a framework for that a little bit. Uh, but no, BYU, I had no framework. I turned up at Brigham Young University. I had taken one exam in my life, which is the ACT. Mm. I don't recommend that as your first exam. Mm. Um, and I'd never written an essay. I, I had no idea what I was doing. Mm. I was a big mess. I mean, I had these experiences. First, one of my first lectures, I raised my hand and asked what the Holocaust was, which is another thing I don't recommend doing if you can possibly avoid it. Mm. Um, Sensitive subject. Well, people heard it as anti-Semitism. They mm. heard it as a denial. Mm. Uh, it didn't occur to anyone that I could not know what that was. Mm. So they had to interpret it as something else. Mm. And yeah, I was already kind of socially awkward and that didn't help at all. Mm. Now, when I was uh, writing this piece on Tara, I called up uh, her professor here, because obviously from Brigham Young, she came here on the Gates Scholarship to ask what it was that made Tara stand out that they gave her this He's scholarship. He's talk next door. <laughs> we'll talk extra loudly so you can hear his own words <laughs> quoted back at him. And this is what Professor David Runciman said to me. Tara wrote in this completely fresh way. Most of us mimic how other people write, but maybe because she didn't grow up reading what we all did, there was this originality to it. One of the striking things about her was she came across as just like any other American student, except when occasionally she didn't know someone like Jane Austen. Also, most people know when they write about academic stuff, also most people, when they write about academic stuff, it can be a bit dry. But that was not the case with Tara. She was just a natural writer, and it never occurred to her to write differently in one way than another. And was there a point when you came to education, that what, a tipping point, really, that you felt that your background was actually a help rather than a hindrance? If I'm being completely honest, I think it was always a help when I was applying for mm -hmm. things. Well, not always, because I usually didn't actually tell anyone about it. Mm. But uh, I didn't even, I remember when I applied for Gates, I didn't really, I felt so awkward going into it. But the people who were writing my letters of recommendation did not feel awkward going into it. They were down with that. So um, I, I don't know. I think I arrived in Cambridge. I wasn't performing, I don't think, particularly well, but there was, I think David in particular had a slight just kind of curiosity that's like, what's going to happen here? Uh, I think we have to follow this through for the entertainment value. <laughs> and so, um, and, you know, I struggled through my PhD, frankly. I kind of had a mental breakdown. I was becoming estranged from my parents, and I was not doing great. Mm. And uh, I think at the end of my PhD, I was fine. I finished it, but it was sort of, you know, barely. Mm. And, uh, and then I had to learn this whole other skill of, of writing, because it's very different academic writing to storytelling. And actually, if you think of the things that make a really good essay, they are the kiss of death for storytelling. Mm. <laughs> They're just like, if you think about, okay, you have your thesis statement and your three supporting points. If you do that in a story, like, here's this person, and here's their inner conflict, and here are the three reasons I think that. I mean, it's just the worst. So um, I, I tried that. It didn't go great. And um, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think Cambridge was this amazing experience. But at the same time, I was definitely still trying to figure things out. I had no idea kind of what. I think one of the hardest things to do with education is, is conceive of what it is and conceive of what it's for and what you're trying to get out of it. And for me, I didn't. I knew almost no one who'd graduated from college. I had no idea what people did after they went to school or what the plan was, mm. what's going on with this whole thing of education. And um, 
in some ways, Cambridge was, I think even going to a foreign country just confused me further. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so by the time I finished my PhD, I started thinking, right, I'm, I'm just going to sit down and, and, and write this stuff out and see what happens. And I was lucky to have David because mm. he said, you know, I have no idea whether you can do this or not, but you might as well try it, you know. Good luck. <laughs> Any student who goes to university, particularly a university in a foreign country, you know, is going to feel like you said discombobulated. You have to find out where to buy food, where you buy a duvet, where you buy you know this, that, and the other. What's the English word for I don't know, biro or whatever? Um, I was so used to that by then because I was at <laughs> BYU, not knowing any of that either. But you had to rebuild an entire value system in your head. I mean, things that you'd grown up believing, whether it was ideas about clothing, sex, medicine. You were rebuilding that inner scaffold while also getting settled into first Brigham Young and then here. How was how did that happen? I mean, how what was it? Who was helping you with that? Um, I was journaling a lot, which I'm really grateful for. Actually, I think it's terribly useful psychologically to just journal. Uh, sometimes you read things you wrote later and you get insights into what's going on with you yourself. I don't know. I mean, I had I got all my vaccinations in Cambridge finally and. Uh, that was super awkward. Um, yeah, I went into the GP on Bridge Street. You know, I kind of turn up, and the nurse says, what vaccinations do you need? And I was like, I need all of the vaccinations. <laughs> and she said, well, these are the ones that you'd have had to birth at the hospital. And I said, yeah, there was no hospital. Uh, I'm going to need those ones. And she said, no, you definitely would have been given these in the hospital. I said, yeah, no, there wasn't one, so I definitely didn't. OK, well, these are the ones that you'd have got when you went to school. Yeah, none of that. That didn't happen either. And it was so uncomfortable. And I remember I ended up getting, I had like band-aids all up and down both arms <laughs> when I left. And, uh, and I went and saw David after. And, he, and it was summer. And I was, you know, I had short sleeves. And he was just like, what happened? You know? <laughs> so it was, there were things I was still working out, I would say, even in Cambridge. And I had a, the vaccinations, the way that came about. I had stopped believing. You know, I went to a doctor at some point at BYU. About midway through, I decided, I took my first ibuprofen my freshman year which was terrifying, it's weird to say, but mm. I really thought something awful would happen. Mm. And then I went to a doctor, and, and I technically was telling myself that I'd let go of these beliefs that my parents had. But the truth was, I hadn't. And I had a conversation how the vaccinations even came about. I went to a lecture in Cambridge on negative and positive liberty, Isaiah Berlin, and how not all the obstacles, sometimes the things that are restraining us are, are physical and outside of us, but sometimes the things that that restrain us are our beliefs that we have in our own head. Mm. And I was thinking that over, and then I had a conversation with my sister-in-law, Stephanie, who was really frustrated that she couldn't, she was really struggling to get my brother, Tyler, to let her vaccinate their kids. And he's a scientist, he had a PhD from Purdue, but he just had an emotional issue from the way he'd been raised with letting her vaccinate the kids. And he finally agreed to let her do it as long as she didn't tell him about it. <laughs> like, you do this in theory, I just don't want to know about it. Mm. And I wrote this journal entry that after that conversation, I was just ranting about it. You know, I couldn't believe that he could be a scientist and still be so buried in these, you know, ridiculous beliefs. And how could he not be more intellectually independent than that? And then at the end of the entry, I kind of thought I could judge him a bit more justly if I hadn't remembered, as I did just now. I've never had my vaccinations. <laughs> I say I believe this, but I don't do it. It's terrifying to do it. And so uh, that was, that was the, the time I finally made the appointment and said, all right, we're just going to, we're going to take a leap of faith and we're going to try this new thing. 
I've, I've been telling myself that I had given up my father's beliefs, but I hadn't quite found the courage to move into this new space. And so I, in Cambridge, I was still working that out in Cambridge. I was not, it was not a quick process. Mm. You know, it, was, it was very gradual. And how about, I mean, one of the things that your brother and your father, your brother Sean and your father really torment you about, really, and scare you with is this idea of your whorishness, the idea that women who don't behave modestly are these awful temptresses. And even if you do behave modestly, there can be an essence inside of you. And if you wear lip balm, that's an expression of that essence. And that's something that really upset you as a, as a person when you were living with your parents still. How did you break away from that mindset? Ah, uh, that's a big one. Um, I think, again, it's a very gradual thing. There were moments that I thought I've let go of that whole way of thinking, and then I would discover I had not. Mm. So there's another bit in the book. I think one of the first um, chapters I write about Cambridge is um, I read John Stuart Mill, and I, I read these amazing things about how we have no, you know, that amazing sentence that I love so much that of the nature of women, nothing final can be known. His whole argument is, we've been telling women what they are for so long and we've been putting this pressure and socially contorting them, that actually, if we just let them be, we have no idea what they would be like. Mm. And I'd grown up in a world where a lot was thought to be known about what women are like and there were certain attributes, aggression was male and submissiveness was female and caring was female and passivity was female. And, um, destructiveness and competitiveness and, and aggression, these were male. And I was always a little bit confused. I felt like something was a bit deformed about me because I felt aggressive and competitive quite a lot <laughs> and destructive quite a lot. And, uh, and I just thought, I occasionally feel submissive and passive, but not very often. And uh, that was just confusing to me. I thought there's something constitutionally wrong with me. And it's kind of an odd thing to be told that something about you is definitionally opposed to what you mm. are. Mm. There's a logical fallacy there. Mm. But I didn't really, I didn't see it until Mill essentially said, I have no idea what you are, nobody does. You are female, so whatever you are must be what a female is. It's very odd to say that you are female, but not. And so I found that really liberating, but at the same time, even while I was thinking through all these things and engaging with feminism, even you know, 18th century, 19th century feminism, I was working my way up. Uh, I, um, I was still going home and witnessing scenes of domestic violence between my brother and his wife, and not just ignoring it, but kind of actively enabling it and covering it up, because that's what I'd been taught to do. And that just felt very natural for me. Mm -hmm. So it's not as though, right, you read something in a book and you suddenly put it into your life. I think the process of education is a lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. And it's that process of having beliefs and living with dissonance for a while and trying to recognize, you know, I, I think it's, I wanted to write about education in all the ways that it, it makes you a different kind of person acknowledging that that doesn't always translate immediately from the classroom. Sometimes it takes a while, and sometimes you notice that you're not living up to your ideals mm. and that you have to make changes that can be a bit terrifying. It were terrifying for me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not an immediate thing. I was touting feminist things long before I ever actually said, I'm not sure this situation is, is, you know, is okay. Mm. I should have said that it's actually Tyler who encouraged you to take the ACT because he had already done it before you. Mm. What do you think would have happened if you hadn't done that? Do you think you would have stayed out in Idaho? I don't think it's very likely I would have stayed. I just have no idea. 
what would have happened. Mm -hmm. There was a period where I thought, I don't have enough money to go back to BYU. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any money, <laughs> like $100. And um, I thought, right, well, that's it then. Now what? And my solution was to go to Las Vegas and live with my brother, Tony, who was running a trucking company in Las Vegas, uh, and work at the In-N-Out Burger. Mm -hmm. So maybe I would have done that. Mm -hmm. I was very close to doing that. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea what would, the, what would have been step two from that mm -hmm. process. And you mentioned how you are estranged from half your family, including your father. Do you ever feel like the price of leaving was too high to have lost half your family like that? I do think it was too high. I think the price of staying was higher. Mm. Um, I also think there was a point where it wasn't really possible to go back anymore. I, I happen to think we don't choose our beliefs Actually, we just come to believe things, and that's the risk of educating yourself, is the process of educating yourself and reading is a, is a, is a choice, is a voluntary one, but the outcome of that is something you don't necessarily have control over. If, I, if, when, if you, you told me when I started reading, well, at the end of this reading and thinking, you're not going to believe in the same religion as your parents, mm. I would probably not have read any, not, not have read a word. I would have chosen to keep those beliefs static. And really, what I thought I could do is become educated, but still, as a matter of will, remain the exact same person. Mm -hmm. And that's not what education is. I think I wanted to leave the mountain and travel the world and then live as if I hadn't seen things. And I wanted to have all of these experiences and expand my mind and still not change. And that wasn't realistic. Mm -hmm. That's not how it works. I think once you're once your beliefs change, you can't force yourself. I think that's true of religious beliefs. I think it's true of ethical beliefs. I think it's true of beliefs about how you think people should be treated, how you think you should be treated. Once they shift, they've shifted. Mm. And you have to decide. I think for me, the choice was, do I want to try to go back to who I was, and then I can have my family back? Or do I want to move forward and accept that I have to let go of some things? And real things, things that are of value to me. You know, mm. Not things that are wholly bad. I think that my family. It took me some time to be able to recognize that, that they weren't wholly bad, that the loss was real. There were definitely some years after the estrangement that it was easier for me to pretend like everything had been awful so that I didn't have to feel that loss. Because when I felt the loss and I felt sad about them, I doubted my decision. Mm. And I thought that because I loved my parents and I missed them, that that meant I'd made the wrong choice. And it took me a while to realize, no, you can, you can absolutely love someone and still decide not to see them. And you can miss them, and it can still be the right thing not to see them anymore. And the love can be real, and the family can be valuable, and it can still be the right choice to let go of it. Mm. Um, now, as David said, you, know, you, write, you write like someone who hasn't, who hasn't read before. You're not indoctrinated with all the books that we've grown up with. And I think that is one of the things. <laughs> she writes like someone who hasn't read before, but not on the <laughs> In a good way, in a good way. <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> and I think it's one of the reasons people love the book. I mean, it reads so originally. It's not like other memoirs out there. Um, but were there other memoirs you were thinking of when you wrote it, or even other writers? I read a few memoirs. I haven't read a lot of memoirs, to mm. be honest. Uh, I pretty much learned how to write. <laughs> we were starting from the beginning, let's just say. I, there was a moment when I started writing the book that I Googled what is narrative arc, mm -hmm. <laughs> which was great. Uh, and wasn't helpful at all. So then I decided what I needed to do was read a lot of books, because they would have narrative arc, and I could analyze it out and figure out how it worked, and then I would know what it was. But books are kind of long, and I was 
I had stuff to do. So uh, <laughs> I had this friend over for dinner one night, and she mentioned uh, this short story she'd read. And I'd never heard of short stories. I didn't grow up in a literature-prone mm. family. I didn't even know what that was. But I thought, shorter. They're going to be <laughs> shorter, and they'll have a narrative arc. So I suddenly thought, I'm going to start reading short stories, whatever that is. And so I started reading them, and then I discovered the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, which is wonderful. Mm. Because what the New Yorker po Fiction Podcast does is they have a writer read a short story, someone else's short story, and then they dissect it. And I just, for me, there was no better curriculum than having a bunch of writers say, did you notice how this story was built? Did you notice that these two paragraphs are both written in the present tense and how it kind of links them? Or did you notice that there's this slightly arcane word and then a cognate appears later? And I wasn't, the answer to that was always no, I did not notice that. Um, <laughs> but once I'd seen it, I was like, I can just steal that. <laughs> That's in my tool chest now. And uh, I'm a big fan of reading. People ask me if I, people say sometimes, oh, you must read a lot of books. Uh, my agent said that to me when we met. She said, you must read so many books. And I said, no. <laughs> I, I read the same books many times. It's a different, it's a, I'm a big fan of repetition. I feel like if I can read a short story 20 times, I can get to, I can start to get my head around how that works. Mm -hmm. And then the mechanisms in that can become my mechanisms and I have access to them later when I need them. If I read it one time, all I get is the plot. You know, I know what happened in the story if I read it once. If I read it twice, I remember what happened a couple days later. And if, if I read it 10 times, I, I understand it structurally. Mm -hmm. And that was a really important process for me of learning how stories, <laughs> learning what narrative arc is, step one, and then moving on from that to how things can be built and the different, the different why you would choose a certain perspective over another. You know, Being able to think critically about something like Toni Morrison's Bluest Eye why does she tell that, not from the perspective of the child that is assaulted, but from the child's friend? Mm -hmm. What does that achieve? And what is the effect on our empathy and on our sense of this child's isolation, seeing it from another person's perspective as opposed to her own? And these are things, I had none of these tools in my head when I started writing the book. Um, I, they, I was writing really bad academic essays about my life, which is the worst kind of academic essay. And, uh, and I had to just learn what, mm. what a story was. So I'll just ask one more question, then we'll open it up to the audience. And the question is going to be the obvious one, which is, are you working on something now? <laughs> yes, I'm working on five things now. Um, I'm trying to put together a documentary about rural education. A lot of people don't know this, but especially in, in the United States, but I think it's probably true here, um, rural kids go to college much lower numbers, mm -hmm. and they drop out at really high numbers. Mm -hmm. And even when they finish, on average, it takes them twice as long, so eight years to do a four-year degree. And I'm just kind of interested in it as a, I mean, the world, I think, politically, they're kind of splitting apart, mm -hmm. and it's largely a rural-urban divide. It's also a left-right divide and a Democrat-Republican divide, but it's largely a rural and urban divide. And it seems to me like these two groups of people just have no interaction, no concept of each other even. And education is meant to be an access point, and it's clearly not working mm -hmm. for those reasons I just said. And so I'm, I'm kind of interested in trying to explain what's going on there, and also just offer an account of the, the shape of those people's lives that is told a little bit more from their point of view. I think what we get a lot in, in the media that we see, for example, your average Trump supporter is more like 
for one thing, it's, it's a very specific segment of the population. 40% of the country likes Donald Trump. 1% go to rallies. Of that 1%, 10% are the kind of real lunatics that we see on TV. And I feel like um, it would be better to get some portraits or snapshots of people who are a little bit more representative. Not extreme. People that I would recognize from mm -hmm. my hometown. Mm -hmm. who are, that's not what I recognize when I see them depicted on in the media. So I'm a little bit interested in... I'm interested in the topic of education, I'm interested in the rural-urban divide and the political ramifications, and I'm also just interested in why the discourse between the two has broken down so, so uh, you know, wholly, really, mm -hmm. just on a complete level. They seem completely unable to understand each other or communicate in any way, so I'm, I'm going to go do that. So I'm going to open it up to questions. I'm sure lots of you have tons of questions. Uh, microphone's going around, so sure, right there. One of the most memorable parts of the book for me was when you were standing on the tower in Cambridge and um, it was windy and you remembered to bend your legs and other people didn't. So I just wondered what part from your past have you kept, either despite or because of your education? Um, you know, you don't, I don't notice it. It doesn't come up very often. It's like very specific situations like that one or I'm, I'm really good at changing tires. <laughs> I, I can change a tire in less than eight minutes. Like, I'm super good at it. I've removed probably at least a thousand tires in my life because we would just take off nice ones of the cars before we crushed them if we wanted the tires. So I would spend whole days changing tires. So I'm really good at that, but you know, it doesn't come out much. Uh, <laughs> Sadly, I don't get as many flat tires as you would think. Although I did have a funny incident where I was in Utah and I got a flat tire and this lovely Mormon man stopped and tried to help me change it because that's what Mormon men do. And, uh, and he had no idea what he was doing and it was so painful. Yeah. He, he actually put it on backwards. <laughs> and I was sitting there like, mm, run away. Um, I think there's one over here as well, yeah. Hi, Tara. Um, how do you feel about your parents not recognizing or possibly not recognizing your achievements so far? Um, unsurprised. I feel totally normal about it. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, my, my parents are funny. I think my dad is really, he was really proud of me that I got into Cambridge. He didn't want me to go because he thought you were all a socialist country. Um, <laughs> but he was really proud of me. So it is that like a lot of things with my parents, it's complicated. And uh, I think he was proud of me about Cambridge. Um, so you have to kind of make a decision about what you're going to hold on to from those relationships and what you want to take into your life. But there was a long period after I became estranged from my parents that I was completely obsessed with the negative, And I was constantly relitigating every awful thing that had ever happened. And it, it took me a while to realize that mostly had to do with me not accepting the decision and not having forgiven myself or made the decision not to have my dad in my life. So because I hadn't accepted that decision or forgiven myself for making it, I had to constantly justify it over and over. And the best way to justify it was to tell myself 50,000 times a day all the awful things he'd done. And that is a miserable way to live your life. It's just not nice. It's not nice to be someone who doesn't have good memories. And the reality is I do have good memories of my dad. So you have to find a balance, I guess, where 
you have good memories of your childhood that you can take into your life and just be someone who has good memories. But also have enough of a grip on what's wrong with the situation that you won't take yourself back and put yourself in that situation again. So I, I work toward that. Some days I'm very angry with my parents. Some days I'm not as, as angry as I need to be to avoid getting entangled. But I think that for me is always the goal. You know, What's constructive anger? Because I think anger can be constructive. It can be self-preservation. Gets you out of bad situations. But I think there's a point where it just is needlessly consuming your happiness and your life. And um, now I, I really try to hold on to the things about my dad that are good that he was proud of me when I got into Cambridge. Uh, it's nice to have a dad who's proud of you, while still remembering there's some complication there. But mostly, I just think there's that crucial difference, which is when you say, I'm not going to see someone anymore because they are a terrible person, versus I'm not going to see this person anymore because I value myself and they hurt me. And that is a difference that is really crucial because one is about hating someone else and the other one is about valuing yourself. And once the decision is about valuing yourself, you can kind of let go of are they so terrible and have they done all these things? Am I justified and all the rest of it? And you can just say, I'm making this decision because of a positive thing because I want to look after myself. And it doesn't matter whether they deserve it or not. I need it. There, in the middle. It was a, a really interesting read. Um, I grew up in Utah and have gradually moved this direction as well. Ended up reading this book with a bunch of intellectual lapsed or lapsing Mormons who uh, all thought it was wonderful. Um, but one, one question along those lines, uh, there's this fascinating sort of disclaimer at the beginning. This book is not about Mormonism. And I'm curious what the history of that comment is, if that was something that you always intended to put there or if it was something that it looked like something that may have come through the editorial process. Um, <laughs> I'm curious to what no. degree that, that <laughs> statement is sort of central to reading it, as may not be surprising. For that group, we all thought, oh, now we all read this book as being about Mormonism. <laughs> so I don't think any of us really thought that it was, but uh, I'd be curious yeah. more about it. I wanted to put it in. My publisher did not want to put it in. Kind of hilariously, I had to bargain with them to get them to put that in. They were bucking. They didn't really want it in. And I said, you can pick any author photo you like if you let me put this in. And they said, done. Uh, so that's how that got in. And um, I wanted to put it in for a couple reasons. I, have a, I genuinely don't think that the book is, I think Mormonism is a character, but I don't think the book is about Mormonism. Everyone in my town was Mormon, and they went to the doctor, and they went to school, and we were the only ones that don't. And it's been my opinion that that had more to do with mental illness. You know, my dad was extreme about everything, and I think, I think probably the mental illness caused the religious extremism. I don't think the religion caused the mental illness. So that's my view of it. I also just think that's a story. I, I was a little worried that people would hear this as a escape from religious fundamentalism and think, well, we know what that is. We've heard that story. I feel like blaming religion for things is often just a, a very convenient way to not engage with things. And so I just wanted as early as I could possibly say, this is not what this story is about. I didn't want this to be just another story where we say, oh, religion is irrational, and so that's causing all these problems, and we, that's as far as we go with it. I think, I think people are irrational, and so how we deal with that, is, I, I thought that was more what the story was about than the religion and the process of change and the whole idea that you, 
you start out one person that your family kind of makes you into one person and then throughout the course of your life, your education in this broad sense, you become another person. And how do you deal with the betrayal of that and the fact that your family may not be able to accept people in your life, might not be able to accept that change? That can come with a flavor of religion. It can come with a side of religion, but it certainly doesn't have to. So I, I just wanted to... I wanted to counter as quickly as I could. First, tendencies that people would have to say, oh, this is a Mormon story. Mormons don't go to school, because that's false. And then also the tendency to uh, take really complicated questions that I think everyone faces and act like they're specific to, to religion, and I don't think they are. Kind of building off of that, I know it's a personal question, so you don't have to go into specifics, but just in light of your experience, have, do you maintain or hold on to any religious belief now? I don't particularly. Uh, as I kind of was saying earlier, I think belief isn't a matter of will. You kind of discover one day. I discovered one day I no longer believed in polygamy. That surprised me. I thought I did. And I was used to being very stressed about it because I believed in it. I was constantly worrying that in afterlife, this would be my life. <laughs> and one day I realized I wasn't worried about it. And I had to realize, okay, am I not worried about it because I think it's a good idea? And that wasn't it. I wasn't worried about it because I had no intention of ever being a part of that. And then that was just kind of finished. You can't force yourself to believe in something that you don't believe in. So for me, I think faith has become a different kind of concept. It's become, it's become a little bit more psychological and a little bit more spiritual in a different sense where I would say one of the things that I think everyone does is you take the world that you have been given as a, as a child and then in an, when you're an adult you recreate that in some way. The relationships that you had, you choose people in your life going forward that confirm that that's what people are like and that's what relationships are like and you just take that world and you rebuild it. And the, the, ten, the temptation to do that is overwhelming. And I've become really, there's a key chapter in the book or what I think of as a key chapter that I titled after um, Hebrews, I think it's 11.1, but it might be 1.11, that is uh, about faith. And it says, faith is the, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, which I really love because I feel like when I was going through that process of estrangement, that decision, do I go back, do I go forward, it was almost impossible for me to imagine a life that I would want to live that didn't have my parents in it. It just wasn't in my head that I could have a happy life and a life that I actually wanted that didn't have my family in it. And it, it kind of felt like an act of faith to say, I'm going to walk out of this house and this life that I know into a future that I have no idea what it will look like or if I'll even want it, but I'm going to try to have faith that it will be good, that there's something, there are relationships and ways of living that are, I haven't seen them yet, there's no real evidence for them, but I'm going to choose to believe that they exist. So that's kind of the idea of faith that I find to be very powerful, but it's not probably religious in the traditional sense. We've got a microphone coming. Um, thanks. Um, fantastic talk. Uh, there's a lot, um, I'm sure, for all of us to think about afterwards, well, for me, anyway. <laughs> um, one of the things that stood out um, for me personally was this journey of um, you value, valuing yourself. Um, obviously your extreme experience led you towards and, and learning to set boundaries. And I was just wondering, um, 
obviously that's been quite a hard-hitting um, circumstance to have to do that with your family, but how, how has that influenced the rest of your life? So it, as you get better at valuing yourself and setting boundaries, how has that changed the, the, your relationships with other people as well and setting boundaries in other aspects of your life? Huh, interesting question. Um, I'm not 100% sure. Um, <laughs> I still find myself, I guess I still find situations where I feel like I'm, I'm too concerned about being a, being a bother, you know, very British thing to worry about. Uh, <laughs> I definitely have that. That just, I think, I think there are certain households that run on the principle that children are not quite fully human, not quite full members of the pack. And there's this bizarre idea that one day they'll grow up and then they'll feel like they are. And I feel like what tends to happen is they grow up and they never quite feel like they are. And that is certainly what happened to me. And I have rationally decided that I am, not that, like I said, even with memory, I'm not a memory fundamentalist. I don't think my memory is more valid than anybody else's, but I don't think it's less valid than anybody else's either. And just claiming that little patch of space was quite hard for me. And I still find cases where my behavior is that I'm not a full member of the human race. I still find that. But rationally, I don't believe it anymore. And I'm constantly trying to correct and say, wait a second, why is your time more valuable to me than my time? <laughs> to be like a five to one ratio. Mm. You know, like, why am I willing to do all this stuff if you're not willing to meet me halfway? And it's a constant, it's a constant struggle, I think. If you haven't been given that sense of self from childhood, uh, I, I don't know if there's a, if you ever completely get over it. But I think you can get over it quite a lot. I'm a lot better than I used to be. Think it through. What's reasonable in this situation? Am I taking care of myself? If you And some people should never ask that question because they always take care of themselves. <laughs> but if you've identified that you're a person who kind of chronically doesn't, that might be a new habit. You know, am I, do I actually want to do this? And I have had to do that a lot since the book especially. I never had enough friends to really need to juggle my social calendar. It was all fine. I was always available. And... Uh, you know, lately I'm, I travel a lot and I have more people in my life and people ask me to do things and my tendency is to say yes to everything and I've recently had to come to terms with the fact that I will go completely insane if I don't learn to say to people, I like you very much, but I'm not doing that. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, it's a, I'm still working on it. I believe in it in abstract terms and the uh, evidence of behavioral change is forthcoming. <laughs> so I think we have time for one more question. So. Gentleman right there, uh, Thank you. Um, the process you describe of becoming educated is a very positive one, uh, but there's a lot of negativity if you uh, read the literature in the US or the UK of uh, kids' particular groups getting estranged from education. So have you, what are the negative aspects of this process you've been through? And do you think it is a process of institutionalization? I do tend to think that. Um, I mean, I think it can be. I don't think it has to be, but I think it certainly can be. I worry about any movements in education towards total standardization. I don't like, I actually don't like the idea that we all read the same thing everywhere. I understand that there's a core of things that we should all know and be exposed to. That I understand. But the idea that curriculum should be standardized seems to me to be a fundamental misunderstanding of what education is. And if we're going to say to people, 
And we say this to kids all the time. Take responsibility for your education. This is your education. Take ownership of it. We're going to tell you exactly what to do and how to do it and when. But it's totally your deal. Uh, it doesn't actually make any sense. And you know, I, I like John Dewey quite a lot. He has that great, that great paragraph about there is, in every education, there's an individual component. There's what the individual brings to their education. And then there's the social component, which is to say, you don't want every individual to start the whole process of learning chemistry from the beginning. You want to start roughly where we left off. You know, Let's learn everything that we know now and move forward. But you need both of those elements. And it does seem to me that the current system is incredibly passive and standard and institutionalized. And there has to be some small corner of education that we can let people make meaningful choices about what they learn. And I. Not, not about whether to learn anything, but these tiny decisions to read Austin, to read Dickens. You know, democracy is not going to be brought down if someone chooses the one or the other. Uh, but I just think anyone who has a child knows that difference between saying, do you want to clean your room or take a nap? It's not a meaningful choice. <laughs> they don't want to do either one of those things. But the idea that they picked this and not that gives people a sense of control and ownership over their lives that I tend to think human beings just need. And it seems odd to me that we would say to people, ah, this is your education, completely your. Why aren't you taking more responsibility for this? I'm just going to completely control everything. Uh, but it's totally yours. It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, it doesn't, I, no wonder people feel disengaged and, and passive and like they're going through a factory. They kind of are. So I think that's all we have time for. I can hear the applause all around us. So thank you so much, Tara. <laughs> <laughs>